Hey, good afternoon. Welcome. A very warm welcome uh, to another session of the Oxford Africa Business Forum. This is on changing for climate, uh, the shift to a circular economy in Africa. I am Ryan Kaplan. I'm an MBA student here at the Saeed Business School, and I'm very excited for this discussion that we'll have today. So I will introduce our, our panelists. We have Valerie Lobby, the co-founder and CEO of Mana Mobility, an e-mobility company in Ghana. Um, we'll get more into that in a moment. And we have Bomi Fagbemi, um, who has started, who has started um, BioLoop, which is a, it's an organic waste processing company that produces, um, that produces animal feed and fertilizers from black soldier fly larvae. So I am personally really interested in that one because <laughs> as I got called out for earlier, I am the garbage man, but we're about to hear from the real garbage man, which I'm really excited about. Um, I am not an African, uh, but as Yvonne said, I am somebody who is I, I am a self-proclaimed somebody who is interested in, in contributing to the growth and sustainable development of Africa. So I'm really grateful to be here today. So um, a little bit more of introduction. So um, Valerie is a serial impact entrepreneur who leverages social enterprise to tackle the UN sustainable development goals. She is currently leading as the CEO and co-founder of Mana Mobility, a startup based in Ghana that manufactures affordable and connected electric vehicles. She holds a bachelor's degree in economics from Southampton University and a master's in sustainability leadership from the University of Cambridge. Her, early, or her career has spanned a number of in industries, which we may get into, um, and she is very decorated. She was recognized as one of the 10 under 35 change makers in Ghana Yes. was honored by President Obama being awarded the Mandela Fel Washington Fellowship for Young African Leaders. And further, in 2019, when she was invited to become a member of the 12th class of the Harambian Entrepreneurial Alliance. So, Akwaba to Valerie. We are so excited to have you here. Um, Bomi, as the co-founder of BioLoop, dictates the key strategic and research and development activities of his company. BioLoop is a climate-positive agritech company that produces low-cost agricultural inputs by upcycling organic waste. BioLoop operates a biorefinery that leverages the organic waste processing efficiency of black soldier fly larvae to produce animal feed, organic compost, and clean energy. BioLoop was recognized in 2021 as part of the New York Times Climate Innovator Initiative cohort at COP26. And Bomi holds a bachelor's degree from the University of Pennsylvania. And prior to founding BioLoop, he worked as a consultant at Sahel Consulting, supporting the implementation of agricultural development projects across West Africa. So once again, very excited to have you here and looking forward to our, to our conversation. So to begin, we're going we're gonna to dive into how you ended up in where you are right now. So Bomi, you, you were working at Sahel. Yes. And then you left that. I did. And I have, and so you, you left your job there, and the during next the, thing you during knew, the pandemic. during the pandemic, yeah. and the next thing you knew, you were in the field, digging yeah. holes, filling crates, yes. and working with Getting larvae dirty, yeah. and waste. So tell us, how, you, how, how did you get there? 
Um, it starts with a passion for food. I think African food is, African cuisine is the best in the world. I think sorry to Japanese, Italian people. But I think, I think we compete globally, and, but you know, we, don't, we don't really see it. And you, need to, you, you, know, you kind of need to know, but I think that narrative needs to change. So, and it goes back to agriculture. So I don't have an agriculture background academically, and I did what you know, anyone who wants to be an expert but doesn't want to do the work does. I became a consultant. And, <laughs> and so I was consulting for a while. We did a poultry project, and I saw 70% of the uh, cost of the running a poultry farm came from feed, and that's before you get into the energy costs and all sorts of things that they deal with. And I, I was thinking, you know, why, why are we importing soy and maize um, in a country where the people don't have enough to eat and feeding it to animals? You know, it's a bit was a bit silly. So um, I had this idea. I thought it was brilliant at the time. I wanted to do a fish farm, and that didn't happen. As you know, startups. Um, this is even before the company existed, and so the idea changed a lot. Which is, I mean, thanks to this consulting experience that made me an expert. Um, I, you know, had this brilliant idea. You know, insects, insect farming. You know, insects use up a lot less space. Um, a lot less water, a lot less energy than traditional agriculture. So let's, let's start farming insects. That's what happened. I was also really lucky to have a like-minded co-founder who is also well, one of my best friends, helps a lot in a startup. Um, and again, you know, again, he's probably less passionate about agriculture and food. He's a finance guy. And we, so we care about making money as well. And that's very important for a business. We care about making money. And that was um, his motivation. And we saw that you know, there's a big gap. If we can provide this solution to the food sector, we're trying to revolutionize the food sector. We're trying to give you, um, cut down on import dependence, reduce food insecurity by providing this um, climate-friendly solution that's also cheap. That's the biggest part. Farmers care about cheap products that are also quality to some degree. Um, so that's that's kind of how we started. Excellent. Thank you. Yeah, and Valerie, so you've, you've spent time in a number of different industries. So what brought you into this space of e-mobility? Why, why the space and why not? Yeah, so um, I started my career in banking and capital markets in EY um, in London. Um, and I had the opportunity of working on the administration of Icelandic banks which made me realize that I was valuing something that had no value. I had wanted to, to use my talents to you know, support banking sectors to, to count more money and make more money. Um, and during that time, around 2008, I went to Ghana for a two-week holiday um, that escalated. So I, I, I never came back to the UK. Um, <laughs> um, and really, for me, it was around finding purpose um, business always came intrinsically to me, um, but how could I use my business acumen to drive value for my community? And that really was the starting point of, of this journey that I've been on. Um, and from there, um, moving back to Ghana, I, I really focused on social enterprises. Um, and I moved to the northern part of Ghana, where I started a, a sanitation company. So I moved to a much more glamorous industry of selling toilets. Um, and that gave me the opportunity to 
understand and engage with people across Ghana at a community level. And when you talk to people, um, it gave me the understanding that transport was a big issue. It didn't matter whether you're rich or poor, it doesn't matter whether you're male or female, everybody moves. Um, and there is a connectivity gap, particularly in rural communities getting to urban areas. But during the pandemic, we were also shown there's a connectivity gap for entrepreneurs reaching households. So we don't have Amazons, uh, we have Jumias, we have Glovos, but the affordability of transport became a real issue. Um, and so we started by really understanding some critical value chains. Um, so one was agriculture. We looked at transport need in agriculture. Um, and what really struck me was, not just in Ghana, but across the continent, we have a huge waste in terms of productivity and productive time with people walking from A to B. So I thought, where is there an opportunity for a better micro-mobility solution that could help people move goods from home to market, um, from market to farm, um, from market to customers? And so we started by um, buying second-hand bicycles. And we realised that bicycles obviously don't go that far. Um, so we started converting them to be electric. And what we also realised was um, I think we had a, a question earlier around, are we ready for EVs? If you put electric vehicles on the road, what will happen? Um, everybody has a phone and they charge their phones. Most people on the continent now have a laptop and they charge their laptops. So what is really important is the vehicles that are introduced to our markets need to suit our lifestyles. And in order for that to happen, we have to manufacture products and services that fit the context and reality of our lives. And so that's really how we started. Hey, thank you. Yeah. Excellent. Um, and I'm glad you addressed that, those couple of questions from previous sessions that had been brought up. That, that led nicely into that. Um, so can you tell us, we'll, we'll stay with you, Valerie. Tell us a little bit more about, about your, your business. So you've got your, your e-bikes. Mm -hmm. You've got an app or a platform, and then you've also got some other stuff coming as well. Yeah. So I think that the transition to electric vehicles we see as a lifestyle, lifestyle transition. Um, so giving the vehicle in isolation is not enough. Um, so we have made sure that all our vehicles are connected to an ecosystem of possibilities. And by that, what I mean is if you have an electric vehicle anywhere on the continent today, you need to know who can support that vehicle? You need to know how to navigate to charging infrastructure. You want to be able to use that vehicle often to generate income. So we actually started by creating an, an, an app platform that has open APIs for people who can design to support the electric vehicle ecosystem to plug into a community of EV users and riders. So an example would be the e-commerce platforms can now plug in and access a pool of riders who are now already using electric vehicles. The insurance community can plug in and design uh, uh, EV insurance that's tailored for how we're riding and driving in our market. So that's why it was important to also start with a platform that connects people to that ecosystem. The second thing has been um, 
I, I read a quote recently that said, culture is defined by how a collective group of people solve problems. And typically, as Africans, we solve the problem of supply by importing. Everything in our markets, from toothpicks to toilet roll, is imported. And the challenge or the opportunity that I see now um, for us is in the transport space, we know that every vehicle on the continent is going to change in that next 10 years. So do we solve that problem by importing old combustion vehicles like we have, like we've traditionally done? Or do we solve that problem by creating an ecosystem of local manufacturing of electric vehicles? So it's an opportunity for us to leapfrog. And so for us, everything started with designing. So how could we create an ecosystem of African engineers who can design electric vehicles. And so I've been traveling across the continent and across the world actually poaching African engineers. I got somebody from Sheffield University who did aerospace engineering. I went to Zimbabwe recently and I'm, um, I found a guy from a, a low-income community who's built a helicopter. You know, we have a lot of human capital that's just being wasted because there's no industry for us. So that's one of the things is designing and creating an ecosystem for African entrepreneurs. The second thing has been, how do we take those designs to series production? So actually setting up manufacturing capabilities in Ghana so that we can iterate and improve um, our vehicles over time because we own the content um, and we have the capabilities around production. And that's the hardest way to enter this industry. I think people keep telling me in, in East Africa, there's a lot of e-mobility companies. In East Africa, a lot is happening, nothing's happening in West Africa. But I think one of the differentials we're seeing is, do we buy or do we build? And we are making the choice to build. And even if it means that it takes longer, if you're looking at this transition we need to go through from a cultural perspective, it is to innovate and it's to trust in our own competencies. Thank you. Thank you. So, you, you touched on a lot of things there. Um, and so, bringing it, or emphasizing some of the points around circular economy um, and, the, and the work that you're doing around eliminating waste and pollution, um, being, being wise around how consumption, consumption and production takes place. With one process leading in, with with the outputs of one process leading into the inputs of another process, those are the core things of circularity. So thank you for that, and we'll, we'll turn to Bomi um, and and walk us through your your process and, and what that what that looks like with your black soldier flies. Okay, so I mean, we're an agriculture company. We're also a waste management company. So we take industrial waste. We collect waste from currently from breweries, um, and we also collect market waste, food waste and we feed it to insects. It's, it's a pretty simple process. We're, fe we're farming insects, and uh, we feed the insects. Insects have a pretty short life cycle, so in two weeks, um, they go from, you know, two, three weeks, they go from egg to maturity and harvest, you know, whereas, you know, months for chicken, for plants, it's a much, much longer uh, growing process, rearing process. And what we get, we get this um, high-protein animal feed and we also get this um, really rich organic fertilizer. So what's really interesting is that Nigeria has 
uh, fertilizer usage rate is probably about seven times uh, less than the global average. So there's like a really big opportunity to increase um, agricultural productivity just by getting even a bit closer to the average. So just making these things a lot more accessible. Um, stemming from that as well, um, it's what's really been interesting in the past couple of years, about oh, past 18 months, I'd say, is that the worse the economy is, the worse the macroeconomic conditions are, the stronger our business case, um, which is unfortunate, but it's good for us. Um, so as the prices of you know, fertilizer has gone up with the conflict in the Ukraine, um, price of wheat, soy, all these things have gone up. Um, so we become a lot more attractive as a solution. And um, is in conjunction with that, I think you mentioned circularity. Our commitment to circularity is, goes just beyond you know, producing insects and whatnot. We're, we aim to be zero waste, zero emissions. Our site is off-grid. Um, we operate fully on solar. That's not really a choice. Like It's not a purely philosophical choice. I mean, we turned up to the, our site and we were informed that the transformer, the local transformer had been stolen. Well, not stolen, but someone, someone, someone took it away. So we had, we had to figure out a solution. And um, so we, we you know, built our uh, facility with solar. And it's been great because if we did it, we'd probably be out of business. The price of diesel went up, I think, 300% last year, um, which is awful. And uh, a lot of our costs went up. A lot of our um, com competitors, their costs went up. But for us, it was great because we could keep our prices relatively uh, stable because of that. Um, so I'd say that's, that commitment to circularity has been a big part of our approach. What else we've been doing? Um, as well, yeah, as well, we've been, uh, we sell directly to farmers at this point in time. The, the goal is to sell to the big feed millers. We're in conversations with them, trialing our products and um, trying to scale to meet their demand. But um, the demand is huge, and um, people, people aren't as squeamish as you would think about insects, especially farmers. They don't care as long as it's cheap enough. Um, so one of our clients is the only, for fertilizer, for example, is the only bonsai artist in Nigeria. Um, another client we had is, is on um, the biggest pig farm in West Africa. So they have about 3,000 pig farmers, and you know, all interconnected pig pens, and where does all the waste go into the waterways? And you know that's awful. But you know, again, these challenges and these um, these setbacks. I mean, to me, they're business opportunities. So, yeah. so, so on the on the topic of challenges, we'll, we'll go uh, <laughs> one more for you. Um, you had mentioned previously that okay. the biggest challenge you have is there endless challenges. Yes, uh, I think part of that stems from operating in Nigeria, um, where, we, where our facility is located, I think. One, like I said, we started, we set up during the pandemic, so access was difficult um, because mobility was restricted. And whenever there's unrest and protest, they love to protest exactly on that road that leads directly to our facility. So um, around the NSARS protest, they blocked off the road. Uh, they blocked off the roads um, about a month ago, maybe three weeks, um, because there's was, there was less cash. So there's all kinds of problems. But like I said, some of these challenges, like 
like the diesel uh, price of diesel going up, cost of uh, doing business rising, are are opportunities for us. So, you know, I think you, you, I I take I take what I can get. I mean, I, I see I see I see energy for for one. I think is the biggest opportunity for us. I think, and that's what keeps us competitive and keeps our costs low. So um, I try to look at solutions. I think. Africa has enough challenges, and it gets a bit boring to keep talking about the problems. Yeah. Great. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so, Valerie, you, you have really taken a powerful stance in, in mentoring and championing women as entrepreneurs. So I'd love to, to hear more about the efforts that you've taken for that and what, what you see as the future of, of female entrepreneurs in Africa. Yeah, I think um, for me it's been an interesting journey because um, the pace of growth of my business has also been influenced by childbirth. Um, and that's something you don't oft often hear, but um, I started 2019, um, and since then I've had two kids, and I have three in total. So I think this is <laughs> I think this is just one thing that a lot of the time we don't actually see in terms of the time it takes for a female entrepreneur, depending on where they are in life, is that the reality of also having to have time out of work is, is often a barrier. And I think we've all been celebrating International Women's Day. And one thing I've been encouraging people, especially people who run institutions, but also um, young women who are entrepreneurs, it's, it's a difficult thing um, to take time out because you lose income and often you lose momentum. Um, and so one thing that I've been very conscious of in terms of policies for people who don't have policies yet for contractors um, is that contractors who are women aren't protected by law in Africa for maternity leave. So a lot of the time what you see is that female entrepreneurs like myself have to have a formal job alongside starting your startup just so that you have consistency of income, which now means, like in my case, I had a nine to five, I had three children under the age of seven, and I had a startup. So I think there was a point made earlier about um, waking up when you have that very important meeting and putting your best face forward you have to put your best face forward after you've bathed all the children, you've fed everybody, you've mobilized the team before you have time for yourself. And I think for me, my, my journey has taught me to ask for support when I need it. Um, and that support can come in many different ways. Sometimes it's support of who's someone who's just going to breathe energy into your life and believe in what it is that you're doing. Sometimes the support is dropping the kids off with grandma and letting them also spend time and learn generationally from you know, your family ecosystem. Um, and sometimes the support also comes from finding the right partners. So for me, I had to actually get a partner for my business in order to allow me to get, go full time so that I could have the peace of mind to scale. And those are scary decisions and they're often not enough mentors who are going through that journey. And I, and I say that I open myself as a mentor to, to women in that, going through that challenge. And I know that there is a lot of support for women entrepreneurs. I think one of the other pain points that I see is sometimes the support is around training. And what I really feel that we need to do to unlock 
female entrepreneurs on the continent is to stop seeing us as so risky because we are the backbone of society. We are overcoming challenges in everything we do, every breath we take. So why is it when we're going in front of investors, they see us as more risky? So for people who have funds, who are looking to support women entrepreneurs in Africa, I'm just encouraging you to take the risk because we're committed. But what we need is capital, and not capital just to start a tech startup. On this journey, I haven't met many women who can go into manufacturing, and that's because it's expensive, and most of us feel we would not raise the capital. So how can we look at that, that specifically, to look at capital at a sizable amount for women who are qualified and who are ready to produce on the continent? So we will open it up to questions from the audience. Um, so if, if there's anybody with a, with a question, we'll, we'll take one now. Yes, over there. Yes. In the blue sweater. I think it's blue. Um, hi. Uh, thanks so much for you know, those insights, Valerie and Bobby. Uh, I think my question is to Valerie. Uh, and it's specifically on you know, e-mobility in you know, sub-Saharan Africa. So my understanding is the biggest challenge with you know, these vehicles is you know, like the cost of the batteries and whether the technology is suitable for the continent. And you know, the way innovation works essentially is you know, more innovation, we need to you know, drop in the cost of the batteries. And you know, subsequently what that means is there needs to be innovation in Africa. So I know you said something around you know, trust in our capacity or trust in our you know, ability to do this. But how can we do that when you know, we're supposed to be competing with you know, markets like China or India whereby they have a lot more resources, they have the talent, and they have the financial resources to do this faster. And they can easily just do that, come into the market, disrupt everything that's happening with you know, the ampersands, you know, like with mana mobility and everything. So how do you innovate sustainably in the continent um, when you're trying to compete against these powerhouses globally? I, I think my starting point is not to compete because the transition that's happening is huge. So there's space, especially in our own markets, for homegrown manufacturing companies. I think the important is the pace of our growth. And the pace of our growth needs people to crowd into this space. It needs engineers from Oxford to come home. It needs uh, financiers to be prepared to lend into this ecosystem, not of the interest rates that you're seeing, 48% per annum. We need people who are prepared to create dedicated green bonds to invest in the sector. We need governments to write policies to protect local industries. So I think the thing for me is we don't need to worry about competition. We need to focus and get our own strategy. And then we need to understand at each stage when there's a pain point, what can we do to unlock that? And I think there's a lot of innovations happening. If we're talking about opportunities, I think you said we're tired about talking about problems. When you're looking at circularity, there are a lot of business opportunities that can make EV production on the continent cheaper from sustainable inputs, how can you source 
inputs more locally, um, to looking at how can we extend the useful life of a vehicle so we're not always looking at replacement, um, to how do we offset the upfront cost of a vehicle through carbon financing or tokenization of carbon credits, um, to looking at second life use. So I'll give an example, with our electric bikes, the tyres are actually bought from us by a company that is now producing um, shoes from scraps. So I think these are the things that we can do to innovate within the context of our market that can make the unit economics better, but actually make the, the, the industry more sustainable long term. And I think we've talked a lot in this forum about profit versus social benefit. We don't need to give up either. What we need to do is understand what works for our markets long term. Thank you, um, Yes, here in the front. Uh, thank you very much for that uh, enriching panel conversation. I, I have a question uh, which is more of a comment as well. You see many startup ecosystems here in Europe, in America, have been growing a lot around good universities. And one observation I've made, especially I'm from Kenya, is that we have a lot of separation between industry and universities, yet there's a lot of talent in universities. Do you think if more startups in Africa were developing and working with universities um, in terms of uh, getting the students or like staff to work for them and building those skills while students are still studying, uh, developing more capital from, from these students so that you, even when they graduate, you have a very big hiring pool. Um, will it be beneficial to us? A good other example here is Formula One and Oxford Brooks. We see that they're doing incredible work uh, through those collaborations. What, what is your take on this? Um, I, can, I can chime in. So, I mean, we do a lot of work with uh, local universities, especially research-based. We hire uh, students as well. We do a lot of our, I mean, it's a cheap way to get someone to do research for you. It's just to call a professor. Um, so we, we do work with them. But in terms of, <laughs> so in terms of, um, in terms of, in terms of um, human capital, you really do have to invest in these people. It's not a one-year, two-year thing. It's, you know, especially with these recent develops, uh, developments, you don't go to school for a circular economy, especially not in Nigeria, or sustainability. So you have to invest, and you have to invest time, money, and knowledge into these people. So it's not a today thing, and it's, it's, it does take a while. So, I mean, the pool might not be huge, and um, it takes a while. You have to shift culture as well, because... Honestly, agriculture isn't sexy. That's not what young people want to go into. So they have to find out, they have to know that one, you can make money doing this, and two, they have to care. Otherwise, they're not going to do it. They're going to go in and be tech bros and do uh, probably work for FinTech. I, I think on our side, um, we do something called design sprints. So we come up with problems from within our business, uh, we push them to the universities. And we've been fortunate enough to actually start off in the impact hub in Accra. So this is some of the things around leveraging that local infrastructure. So that's helped us um, to, for the, the impact hub became a bridge for us. So they host the design sprint. So it's not also on our cost as entrepreneurs. 
um, and then they can facilitate the engagement with the universities. So we now currently have six students who've come from universities across Ghana who were the, the winners of the first design sprint. I think that's just one example of how these kind of collaborations could work. Recently, I was in, in Cape Town for the first ever Formula E race in Africa, and it was exciting to, to go to Stellenbosch University to see what they've actually done by opening up the universities to entrepreneurs, where on campus they have spaces where um, businesses and startups can actually be based. And one of the issues you see in Ghana, I don't know how it is in Nigeria, you have to pay one year up front if you're paying for an office. So now there, they don't have those challenges. I don't think they have it in South Africa anyway, but these are some of the things that the universities can also do to encourage entrepreneurs and startup and young businesses to actually be cited in the universities. Therefore, you now have an, an, a natural ecosystem to be engaging with students and it also helps the, the entrepreneurs. I think the challenge that we see is there's too much of a separation from a geographical perspective, but also from a content perspective around not being clear on industry problems. Thank you. I think we have time for one more short question. Um, maybe, oh, from over here. Hi, Valerie, I have a question for you. Um, so you mentioned something about policy makers and your engagements with them, and I wondered, because I, I, I suspect that for ventures like yours, the success will depend on policy makers' ability to change policy to suit some of the things you're doing. In your engagement across the continent, what sense do you get from policymakers about their preparedness to change or accept innovations like yours? Yeah, I think um, people are excited and see the opportunity for manufacturing vehicles on the continent. But when you look at the policies that are being created, they're being created to facilitate traditional OEMs setting up assembly plants on the continent. And so I think that mindset shift for people to actually say, we can produce our own vehicles, is something that policy also needs to acknowledge. And I'll give an example. Um, we are in the process of building our first prototype electric four-wheeler car. Um, we went to build our initial chassis, and we realized that um, every chassis has to get a chassis number from their government. So we went to our government and said, what is the process of getting the chassis number? What forms do we need to fill? And then we were told there is no process because no one has ever manufactured a car in Ghana. No one's manufactured a chassis. So that's fine. I'm fine for us to be the first, which is great. But then we need openness from government to create that process. And I think in Ghana, definitely the government has been open to engaging with us to create those processes. But it also is a lot of work because now you have an ask for them in an environment that's totally new. So I think one of the other things that's been important is when engaging with regulators is also to be able to go with your ask and if you already have a case study of where something has worked that could be a guideline to actually support government to also create that legislation or those guidelines that are needed. I would like to turn that to Bomi as well. Um, if you'd like to, to okay. mention anything on the, on the regulatory or policy yeah, I think Yeah, I think what's really interesting about what Valerie said as well is that because we're innovating, because you're an innovator, the regulation typically doesn't account for your existence. Mm -hmm. So it's a un unique space to be in. You get to kind of shape policy if you have that relationship and that openness. And um, 
for us, I mean, we've been lucky that we've been able to liaise with the Federal Ministry of Agriculture um, and, you know, help train some of their staff around, you know, the circular economy and what they can do to improve. And that openness is there. Um, whether that's going to lead to direct policy, I don't know. But the fact that, you know, we're not being directly restricted, I think is, especially for a Nigerian startup, I think is, is a blessing. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you to the audience. Thank you to Valerie and Bowman.